Hello everybody, good evening and good day to all of you and welcome to the latest episode of the Ask Abhijit show. I hope you're doing, you're all doing well. Uh, let us see who all is there with us. I can see Argya, Deep, Nikhil Singh, Srishti, Abhishek, Soham, D.S. Udawat, Swapnil, Tejas, Trillionaire, Himanshu, Manan, Shri Pushp, Tukesh, Debosman, Kostu, Bhavye, Harshuraj, Ashima, Uttisht, Jagrat, Bharat, Dhruv Bhatt, Shivam, Anandu, Moody, Chandragupta, Nilesh, Abhinav, Kamlesh, and a whole lot of people. Chiching, Kavit, Deep, Amar, Abhishek, Ashok, Prachit, and lots of other people. Good evening, good day to all of you. Thank you all for being here. And uh, do let me know if my image is all right. Once in a while, there is an issue sometimes. So hopefully I'm visible clearly. And I'll keep an eye on the chat from time to time to see how it is going. All right. So let's uh, get into it. I've picked a bunch of questions. We'll do a few questions, maybe 20 or so. And then if there is time, I will take a few questions from the live chat. So if you have any questions, keep that ready for the end. All right. I can see my image is clear. Thank you all for letting me know. Thank you. Right, let's get into the questions. Question number one is by Akil. The question is, uh, I'm from Mauritius and recently India has been building an airstrip in Agalega Island which belongs to Mauritius. The government here did not reveal any information concerning the contract and a lot of conspiracy theories are being made by the Mauritians that the island will become an Indian airbase. Can you give some useful information about the contract between India and Mauritius? What's the geographic importance of the Agalega Islands to India? Is India building the airstrip for free? Okay, excellent question. So let's take a look at the map and see where these islands are so that we understand the geographical significance and other issues. Where's the map? Here it is. So we know where India is. Let's go southwards in the Indian Ocean. So the, here we have the twin islands of Mauritius in Réunion. Réunion belongs to France. Now the Agalega Islands are really far away from Mauritius. It's about a thousand kilometers north. And the capital city of the Agalega is Vansank. This here. So these two islands are the island islands in question where India is uh, building some sort of military or naval facility. As you can see, it's really, really far from Mauritius. The distance may be more than a thousand kilometers. Let me find out the distance. If I measure the distance from here all the way to Ile Maurice, it is, yeah, a thousand plus kilometers. So that's the situation. It's actually closer to the Seychelles, the Agalega Islands. Now, let's take a look at what this place looks like. I mean, uh, the population of this uh, these twin islands is, I think, less than 300, just a bunch of people who live there. And uh, this is what it looks like. And as we can see, there is an airstrip over here. And uh, there are a couple of little settlements. The capital city, so to say, <laughs> is Vansank, this thing here. There is a Shiv Mandir here and various other things. And this is the airstrip in question. I'm not sure how recent this image is, but... As we can see, it's a functional airstrip and there's a secondary smaller airstrip as well over here. Doesn't seem to be a lot of development beyond that, but yeah, it's an airstrip and uh, possibly something else going on there. So that is the uh, geography and the 
what's going on in this place. It's very far from Mauritius, but it belongs to Mauritius for sure. So the question is, okay, so why is there a controversy or a controversy or an issue? So uh, recently there were a couple of articles, one in, I believe, Al Jazeera, which is an Arabic uh, mouthpiece. And the other one, I think, was from some Australian publication, which is a U.S. mouthpiece. And, well, the Arabic world is controlled by the U.S., more or less. So uh, they have uh, raised the question of what is India doing in Agalega? What is the relationship like? What is the contract like? What exactly is, is, is happening? And they have claimed that the people of these islands, these less than 300 people, are upset about what's happening there. Yeah, that's what they have claimed, the, the uh, publications, Al Jazeera and some Australian publication. What, uh, what is the truth behind this? Do we see anything on social media from the people of Agalega of that island? I mean, a couple of journalists or reporters go and make a claim on behalf of somebody else. And we know that these are propaganda mouthpieces of various uh, forces. We need to be a little careful about what we believe. It's very easy to manipulate public opinion. Now, what's happening? There are controversy theory, uh, controversies and conspiracy theories, and like uh, like uh, is being mentioned here. Uh, so, what is the truth? Obviously, India is build, building some sort of military facility there. Obviously, the Mauritius government is fine with that. Now, what is the relationship like? Is India building the airstrip for free? We don't know. Neither the Indian government nor the Mauritius government has issued any clarifications. But India does not. Uh, engage in such activities uh, without fair compensation to any country, whether it is Oman, the Dukhm port, whether it is Iran, Chabahar, whether it is anything else. We typically have a good relationship with that government. We typically do things that are of mutual benefit to both countries. And if we lease some island or some, some piece of land or whatever, India typically pays for that. India always pays for that. So despite the fact that no information is available, I can, I think we can safely say that whatever India and Mauritius are doing, it is something that's of mutual benefit. India and Mauritius have very close relations. India has in the past uh, offered various uh, Coast Guard vessels to Mauritius, even a couple of helicopters, if I'm not mistaken. And India has always uh, regarded Mauritius as a sort of a country that falls within its sphere, within its own national interest or sphere of influence. Not that India is trying to influence the internal matters of Mauritius. That's never happened. But there, there is obviously a, a whole history behind this and very close ties between the people. The majority population of Mauritius is of Indian origin. I think uh, slightly less than half. So clearly there is a, a deep and ancient history behind this. So uh, the reason why India is doing this so we don't know whether India is paying or not. Most likely, obviously, India is paying. And obviously, it's something that benefits Mauritius as well as India. Now, why is India doing this? Why is India building an airstrip or some sort of uh, uh, marine base in the Agalega Islands? Well, it's very clear why. If you look at the geography of this region, it's smack bang in the middle of the Indian Ocean. Yeah. And... The Indian Ocean region is something that the Chinese have been eyeing for the past decade or so. They are trying to build a network of 
naval bases, dual use bases, the so-called string of pearls. So the Chinese bases, there is one in Djibouti. I have shown this in the past. I will not go into that right now. There is one in Djibouti. There is one in uh, Gwadar, Pakistan. There is one in Hambantota. Here it is in Sri Lanka. They have acquired this on a 99-year lease. Uh, they have been in talks with the Bangladesh government for one of their ports. Maybe something with, definitely something with the Myanmar government as well. And again, uh, they are trying to influence countries like Thailand and Indonesia, etc. for uh, such activities. And uh, even with Madagascar, I believe the, Chi the Chinese are trying to uh, acquire some ports for either ma uh, commercial purposes or dual use purposes. So the Chinese are essentially trying to encircle India and acquire a significant strategic footprint, naval footprint in the Indian Ocean region. India needs to keep an eye on what the Chinese are doing and India needs to build its own uh, network of sorts, if possible. So Vansank is, I mean, the, the Agalega Islands represents one of those investments that India is making. And obviously, it is not something that is that is being stolen from Mauritius. It's being done with the government of Mauritius uh, with, with their go-ahead. So <coughs> India also has a, a smaller network of bases or, or uh, acquisitions in this region. For instance, in Oman, we have the Dukm port that India is developing. Uh, in India, uh, in Iran, we have Chabahar, which I'm not sure what the status is like. Iran is now very strongly pro-China. So that may not be the case. Sri Lanka and India have good relations. So Sri Lanka, then we have the Andaman and Nicobar Islands, which belong to India themselves, India itself. And uh, various, uh, Singapore also is favorably inclined towards India, the Philippines, uh, Vietnam, Japan, and so on. So India also has a footprint in this region. Uh, we cannot quite say that India is encircling China. Some people try to bring Mongolia also into that. That's not quite how it is. But uh, So India is trying to, uh, to create its own uh, eyes and ears in the Indian Ocean region. India always says that the Indian Ocean region is its strategic backyard. Well, India is now putting its money where its mouth is. Just Slogans don't make the Indian Ocean your strategic backyard. You actually have to invest in infrastructure. So that's what India is doing. So uh, that is the story in brief. And uh, so that's what it is. India is not stealing any land from Mauritius. India is not doing something that is against the national interest of Mauritius. It is something that's mutually beneficial for both countries. I'm sure India is giving more than enough, uh, more than a proper fair compensation for the land it has acquired. And uh, it will offer some some sort of benefits to Mauritius as well. So that's what I can say in brief, right? That's the background about this story. Okay, um, hmm, interesting story here, interesting comment. Mr. Abhijit, this is by Mr. Ashok Chudasama. Mr. Abhijit, you're totally uninformed and misguided. Please talk on something based on truth and fact. Gandhi was not becoming overnight leader. Have you read him, read about him in details? Please read, please read about him. If you don't have time, watch the movie Gandhi at least. <laughs> we'll give you some glimpse of what Gandhi was. You have very little knowledge about the history of independence. Please make yourself more knowledgeable. I get this these comments every day. Please read. You are not, uh, re you are not sufficiently informed. You are misinformed. You know nothing. 
you you should read a little bit so that you will gain some knowledge that's the kind of comment i get all the time so this is one such comment by mr ashok chudasuma who looks like a very distinguished gentleman so uh firstly i would like to say that you do not acquire knowledge about history from watching movies or watching tv series lots of people tell me your uh, that i am wrong because the whatever series they have seen about the mahabharata or the ramayana showed something else so whatever i am saying is wrong that's one thing that i get all the time and this is another one watch the movie gandhi then you will know about mr gandhi do you know what the movie gandhi was like ask yourself this 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 question how come see the first of all this movie gandhi was a co-production between india and the british the producer and director was richard attenborough who was british right there was a significant british hand in this it was all the much of the work was done by british artists and uh, there was some cooperation between the indian government and the british government in, in this the indian government of see this movie was released in 1982 i think the indian government of the time is believed to have funded at least uh, offered at least one third of the movie's funding right now the question nobody asks is why did the british make no movie about subhash chandra bose why is that why did the british make no movie about bhagat singh or veer savarkar why only about mr gandhi and if you if you watch the movie it's it's a hagiography of mr gandhi it's portraying him as a saint essentially right so it it does not offer anything any gray areas or anything about mr gandhi and his life and so on so that is one thing first of all that we have to ask ourselves that why why do the british extol the the virtues of mr gandhi and why did they never make a movie about subhash chandra bose or anybody else well the truth is that they never saw mr bose as their any as 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 some they always saw bose as the real enemy bose wished to overthrow the british through military means and he actually tried to do that he put his life on the line and we we know how it went so bose tried to overthrow the british by taking the help of the axis powers because my enemy's enemy is my friend that's how it works now if you, if you want to read about mr gandhi and see what actual historians have to say then look at people who who don't regard him as a saint and and have a more balanced view let me uh so there is this a uh, british author called patrick french yeah he's he's a very very uh very well regarded historian an accomplished historian let's see what mr richard french has to say about mr gandhi so he was a wily operator not india smiling saint this is what uh, sorry patrick french patrick french has to say so there's a whole article over here um it goes into various things about personal life of mr gandhi which i am not really that much interested in now let's let's read this paragraph shall we yeah this one here i hope you can all see it on the screen it says an important origin of the myth was richard attenborough's 1982 film gandhi take the episode where the newly arrived gandhi is ejected from a first class railway carriage at peter maritzburg after a white passenger objects to sharing space with a coolie 
in fact gandhi's demand to be allowed to travel first class was accepted by the railway company rather than marking the start of a campaign against racial oppression as legend has it this episode was the start of a campaign to extend racial segregation in south africa gandhi was adamant that respectable indians should not be obliged to use the same facilities as raw kafirs or black people he petitioned the authorities in the port city of durban where he practiced law to end the indignity of making indians use the same entrance to the post office as black people he and he counted it as a victory when three doors were introduced one for europeans one for asiatics or indians and one for natives or black people so mr gandhi was not trying to end racial segregation in south africa he was trying to extend racial segregation in south africa he was of the opinion that black people are the lowest of the lot racially indians are above the black people and the europeans are the predominating race that is what mr gandhi was of the, that was his opinion and that was what he campaigned for right and uh, let's take the let's take a look at the last paragraph although mr gandhi may have looked like a saint in an outfit designed to represent the poor people of rural india he was above all a wily operator and tactician having lived in britain and south africa he was familiar with the system he was attempting to subvert he knew how to undermine the british when to press an advantage and when to withdraw little wonder that one british provincial governor described mr gandhi as being cunning as a cartload of monkeys that is that is what the one british provincial governor said that's not what i am saying all right now mr french seems to be of the opinion that the Brit- that mr gandhi was trying to subvert the system of the british and trying to overthrow the british which may not quite be the case but anyway that's how it is so here is a different perspective by a historian by a british historian so i would uh, strongly urge people to look at the 360 degree perspective when it comes to mr gandhi there are a couple of books everybody talks about one is the experiments with truth one is uh, something else by uh, what mr guha or whatever and uh, some such things i would recommend that why don't you read the actual writings of mr gandhi because indians are obsessed with people's words so why don't you read what mr gandhi actually wrote and all of his uh, all of his writings are actually available in the public domain google it i am not going to spoon feed you i get uh, <laughs> people always ask me where is the evidence for what you are saying why don't you do a little bit, bit of work on your own whatever i'm telling you why don't you why don't you cross reference it and cross check it all the evidence is out there in the public domain use google and don't use wikipedia use actual sources that that are reliable use google whatever questions you type over here in the comments you can type them in google and see what google throws up try to do a little bit of research on your own that's how you learn how long will you get answers from me i mean i am happy to answer as many questions as, as i can but i would be really happy if some of you would actually learn to do a little bit of searching and research on your own all the information is out there all the voluminous and copious writings of mr gandhi are all available in the public domain you can see his opinions expressed over there his attitudes and his opinions about black people about south africa about various other things it's all there in the public domain the entire record he was a 
Mr. Gandhi, despite being an activist of freedom fighter, supposedly and whatever not, he found the time to write thousands of pages of notes and letters and whatnot. And it's all available in the public domain. So look it up and discover Mr. Gandhi in his own words, what he was like, right? So please don't tell me to watch a movie and learn about Mr. Gandhi. Please, please. I have done a little bit of reading of my own in my life. So thank you. And I, I mean no disrespect personally to Mr. Chudasama. None at all. I'm just saying, see, this is something I've seen lots of times. Lots of times I've seen when I go, um, when I do a pub, uh, some kind of public appearance or some kind of speech or whatever, there's a Q&A session and lots of distinguished elderly gentlemen express this sort of opinion. I remember once somebody said that uh, there must be something really wrong with Indian culture that India produced nothing of any value in the scientific world in the last 2000 years. How misinformed people are. And it's not their fault that they are misinformed. It's the Indian education system that has made them believe all this. And after a certain age, I've noticed again and again that after a certain age, people are just unwilling to change their opinion. Even when you show them the facts and the facts stare them in the face. It's the uncles and aunties generation which uh, refuses to change their worldview, even when you show them the facts. So I'm glad most of my viewers are younger people. So that's how it is, right? So that's what I have to say about this matter. Okay, Amai says, why Japan didn't invade Russia in World War II at the, uh, the time of German invasion on Russia? They can't... They, they could have gained things like oil, natural resources, etc. Okay, it's a very clumsily worded question, but an excellent question. This is a very intelligent question and a great question, even though it's worded slightly uh, awkwardly. Uh, why did Japan not invade the USSR in the, in the, during the time of the Second World War when Germany invaded the USSR? They could have gained lots of things like natural resources, territory, oil, and so on. Good question, good question, very good question. Let's go to the map and take a look at what the geography is like so that you can understand why this question is being asked. It's a very good question. Let's take a look at the map once again. So here is the map. If it, Yeah, here it is. Now, so this is Japan. As you can see, this here is Japan. The, the, uh, the bunch of islands to the east of Asia to the east of Korea and to the north of Japan there is disputed territory this is the island of I believe Hokkaido north of Hokkaido is the Sakhalin Peninsula uh, the Sakhalin the island of Sakhalin which is Russian territory today and there are all these islands over here which are uh, disputed islands they are held by Russia the Kuril Islands but the Japanese claim them okay that's a different story that is something. Uh, so the Japanese-Russian conflict dates back to the early 1900s. 1904, 1905, there was this naval war between Japan and Russia, and the, and the Russians lost disastrously. The Japanese won. They became, became regarded as one of the great maritime powers and one of the world's great powers in 1905. Now, so, and, and uh, to the east of Japan, as you can see, there is this massive massive geographical entity which is russia today which was the ussr uh, in the second world war right and the japanese had a very powerful 
expeditionary army they had a, they had one of the major most powerful navies in the world at the time so the question is very good why did japan decide not to invade the ussr when the germans had already uh, begun their invasion launched their invasion of the ussr so the germans had invaded the ussr from the west and it was an excellent time for the japanese to to start a two front war like we talk about in india right but they did not do it why was that so um in 1939 i believe the japanese had already invaded uh eastern china manchuria present day china manchuria they created a puppet regime called the manchuoku regime and uh, they had uh, also conquered parts of uh, northern china and mongolia at the time was under us under under the control of the ussr now the japanese army tried to uh, invade soviet controlled territory and there were these border clashes there was a there were a few battles almost like a war between the japanese army and the ussr under admiral zhukov i believe he was commanding the ussr army and the russians were defeated thoroughly they got a bad whipping in this in this brief war now at the time there were two schools of thought in the japanese military one was there it was a very powerful military and they had a massively powerful navy at the time so one school of thought was the northern expansion school of thought the one portion of the japanese military wanted to expand into eurasia from the north which means take over manchuria take over parts of the ussr take over eastern ussr and go further west from there onwards that's a massive huge territory right so there was one school of thought the other school of thought in the japanese military was to expand in the south take out parts of china maybe whole of china the whole of china uh, southeast asia and advance into india so there was the other school of thought now after the disastrous defeat of the japanese military in mongolia the consequence of that was that the school of thought that said japan should expand in this in the south that school of thought prevailed and that's why the japanese military the japanese leadership decided to not go ahead with invading russia but go ahead with invading china and southeast asia and that's what they did and of course the majority of the resources were available in china and southeast asia right so that's why they did that and they had a very successful brutal and rapid advance they swept aside the chinese forces they swept aside uh, the british forces in in southeast asia in singapore etc and they they marched onwards to the doorstep of india they actually in, entered india in nagaland and manipur and it was even with the indian national army of subhash chandra bose and they also did, took over the andaman nicobar islands but eventually from that portion onwards they were beaten back and that was the beginning of the end of the imperial japanese occupation of southern and southeastern asia so that is in brief why the japanese decided not to invade the ussr but decided to invade southern the southeast asia and go further westwards towards india 
Okay, this is a question by Ram Lakshmi, who I would like to appreciate because he is uh, he puts up the um, timestamps all the time. Thank you so much, Ram Lakshmi. I really appreciate that. So the question is: uh, We know that Brahmins in ancient India were knowledge bearers, uh, but if a person from Kshatriya class, caste, whatever, wants to wanted to study rather than then take a place in the military, was there a provision for doing that? Similarly for a Brahmin as well. Listen, so caste, we talk about caste here. There was no caste system in India. There was a Varna Jati system in India. Okay, let's let's go into that first. What is the Varna Jati system? Let me give a weird example, but I think it will make sense. Let's say there's a person from Canada who becomes a Hindu, who, who starts practicing Hinduism, right? And that person is a school teacher today. So, based on that, what we can say that the person's jati is Canadian, and Varna is a Brahmin because that person is a is a person who imparts knowledge. Let's say a person from Italy, Italy, starts practicing Hinduism, and that person is a soldier. So that person's jati will be Italian or Roman or whatever you want to call it. And their Varna will be Kshatriya. Let's say a person from Russia today decides to start practicing Hinduism. So their Jati will be Russian. Their Varna will be a laborer, right? A carpenter or whatever. So that will be Shudra. And let's say a person from Germany starts to practice Hinduism. And that person is a business person. So their Jati will be German and their uh, Varna will be Vaishya. So that's how it always worked. But this person who is a business person decides to start become decides to become a teacher. Then their Varna will change from Vaishya to, to Brahmin based on their occupation and their aptitude. So that's how it works. And that's how it always, always was in India. Uh, if we look at Greek accounts from the Mauryan times, there were seven divisions in, in Indian society, not four, seven divisions. I've spoken about that in the past. But uh, later on, it was four divisions, the four uh, Varnas, right? Now, there are lots of examples where people were born into a certain Varna and they moved on to a different Varna based on their occupation and their aptitude and all that. For instance, there were several kings of Vijayanagar. Let's talk about the great king Krishnadevaraya. Krishnadevaraya was not born a Kshatriya. Hmm? He was not born a Kshatriya. Uh, the king, the great emperor of the Vijayanagar Empire from the 15th and 16th centuries, yes. He was not born a Kshatriya. He was born into a different Varna. But he was the emperor and he, and he had all the qualities of a Kshatriya. Let's talk about Chandragupta Maurya. We don't even know what his Varna was. He was most likely an orphan kid who was raised to the status of emperor by the great Vishnugupta Chanakya. So he, we don't know what his birth Varna was, but he lived as a Kshatriya. Let's uh, take the example of the uh, of the Brahmin, Dronacharya. He was a Brahmin, he was a teacher. He taught martial arts and various other things. And he fought in the Mahabharat war. And as he, because he fought, he acted as a Kshatriya. Right? So that's how it is. So Varna is not caste. Caste is something the British created after they came to India. And that's the one of the biggest causes of all the societal problems we have in India today. 
and they they ossified that system the british so varna is not caste and jati is a whole different thing right jati is something you're born with and which stays with you it's your lineage right it's your lineage varna is what you do your occupation you go be a soldier you are a kshatriya you go and teach you or, or you become a scholar you are a brahmin you become a business person or a vegetable vendor or whatever you want you are a vaishya and if you want to become a laborer or something you, that that makes uh, you a a shudra and shudra is not something like it's a bad thing it's just four different uh, essentially occupations classes of occupations so varna is not caste even the gods in india were classified into varnas right agni is supposed to be a brahman indra is obviously a kshatriya the warrior god and the god pushan is a shudra and so on so that's how it was so in ancient india before the past 1000 years of humiliation before that terrible period there was no such ossification of the of the varnas you could go into you may be born into a certain varna into a certain family that practices a certain occupation but based on the aptitude you showed in school etc you could go into something else that was perfectly fine take the chinese pilgrim xuanzang who came to india did he have any varna he was a foreigner foreigners i mean we don't even know whether foreigners have his jati was tang chinese his varna based on his deeds and actions became was became brahmin because he was a scholar right so that's how it always went we need to understand that and the problem is i will get a lot of pushback about what i've just said people will say you are whatever right i don't blame the people who do that they have been taught certain things since childhood since the time they were 3 or 5 years old the education system takes care of that and the education system has been the the syllabus and the textbooks have been written by india's enemies that's what we are living through our education system is in the hands of our enemies our entertainment industry is in the, essentially in the hands of international uh, forces forces that are inimical to indian national interest and culture i would i'm not saying everybody is like that but many of them are like that many of them and the entire education system since the 1970s has been under a marxist stranglehold and we know what their attitude is like so please don't please take a bigger picture approach look at actual original sources look at what the foreigners said about india before the era of invasions before the past millennium of humiliation what did the greeks say about india what did the chinese say about india what did the the, the scythians say about india and so on and so forth what did the persians have to say about india what did the arabs say about india the overwhelming the entire account over these centuries and millennia has always been extremely extremely positive so it is time hopefully soon to decolonize and decontaminate the indian education system right nishant says jai hind sir jai hind sir uh, can pakistan disintegrate into three countries like uh, pakistan's ex prime minister shri imran khan said pakistan the only f- thing that holds that is holding pakistan together is external forces pakistan is very useful as a counterbalance to india pakistan is very useful from time to time when somebody wants to hurt india or bleed india Pakistan is very useful for forces that seek to keep India off balance and always wary about the western border. In the past it was the US that funded and financed and aided and abetted Pakistan. Today it's China. 
in the future it could be the US again. Who knows? We don't know how it goes. Um, so the only reason why Pakistan is held together as a, as a, as a unified country is because of external forces. They want Pakistan to stay together. That's why they prop up the army which owns the country. There is no democracy over there. There, there are prime ministers that, that come and go, come and go. It makes no difference. They don't really hold any real power. They may have money. They have no power. The power lies with the Pakistan army. Right? So uh, the moment Pakistan is no longer useful for anybody, it's going to disintegrate. It's going to disintegrate. And I, I have, I, I've said this many times, I have nothing against the people of Pakistan. I wish them nothing. Not, I have no ill will towards them. I hope they live great lives and all that and they have good futures of whatever kind they want. But Pakistan is a problem for India. And India should find a way of resolving this problem once and for all. It is historically Indian territory that has been taken over, expropriated from India against, without consulting the people of India. So it's not a legitimate nation. right? It is territory that is historically Indian territory. It is the territory, the sacred territory of our ancestors for at least 10,000 years. So uh, yes, like Shri Imran Khan Ji said, Pakistan can certainly disintegrate into three or more countries. I mean, which three countries? Sindhu Desh is one. Balochistan is another. What else do we have? Uh, Pakistani Punjab is the third. And Pashtunistan is the fourth, which may reintegrate itself with Afghanistan. So it's not three, actually it's four. But yeah, uh, disintegration is always on the cards. But right now, Pakistan is useful. Pakistan is useful for certain major foreign powers to keep India counterbalanced, to ensure that India doesn't rise too much. And it's useful for more than one foreign power, even today. So as long as that is there, Pakistan is going to stay in one piece. But once India rises beyond a certain point, it may not be possible for Pakistan to remain united because there is no real thing that keeps Pakistan united except for the army and external forces. Okay, next question. Oops, long question. Umaid Rafiq says, I am from Afghanistan, living in Canada. I was very surprised when I heard an Indian friend of mine considering the Mughals and the Afghans to be the same. To my shock, he started praising Urdu. I took my time and explained to him that Afghans and Mughals fought many wars. We speak Pashto, not Urdu. So I wonder why is it that Afga Indians often brush Afghans, Pakistanis with the same brush. In Afghanistan, people are very have a very positive view, view towards India. Very interesting uh, insight from somebody who is an Afghan and a Pashtun, I expect. So this is all because of the Indian education system, which does not teach the true history of India. Right? Afghanistan, the, the people of Afghanistan, they fought the Turks multiple times, like you said. They fought, uh, what's his name? Timur, the, 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 the tyrant. Timur the lame. Timur Lang, who passed through Afghanistan, through Gandhar on his way towards Delhi, where he committed genocide, right? That brutal barbarian, Timur. So the Afghans resisted that invasion. The Afghans resisted the so-called Mughals, who are actually Turks. The Afghans fought against the Turks and prevent, tried to prevent their invasion into the Indian subcontinent. And at one point in time, in the 16th century, if I'm not mistaken, the king of Afghanistan was a Hindu, Hemachandra Vikramaditya. 
his army was made up of pashtuns muslims but he was their king he was the successor to sher shah suri and he actually reclaimed the throne of delhi and was installed as the last hindu emperor the last native emperor of the indian subcontinent of india and uh, he uh, eventually fought the 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 uh, invader akbar and he received a stray arrow to the to the eye and that's what killed him so he was unlucky that he got killed but that's how it went and then this uh, this guy akbar he had the dead body of him who decapitated and his head was sent to kabul to terrorize the local people that see what we did to your king right so the afghans 500 even 500 years ago regarded themselves as natives of the indian subcontinent it's only in the durrani era that uh, the final break kind of sort of happened and today afghans consider themselves to be completely different from indians mm-hmm. so um but the truth is that the afghans especially the pashtuns have very ancient uh cultural and ethnic ties with the rest of india i have in the past showed genetic papers that show, that demonstrate that the pashtuns are an extension of the north indian population their culture is very much the culture of the indian subcontinent i'm not talking about the islamic culture which has been imposed upon them in the past 1000 years they deeper cultural traditions and all that, the attendants and various other things the kind of dresses they wear the uh, the code of honor that they have some of it comes from their deeper past and uh, the city of kandahar more than 1000 years ago was called the city of rajputs so that is the true history of afghanistan so, and now when it comes to pakistanis well pakistanis are genetically and ethnically indian but uh, there is a whole history between pakistan and afghanistan which is more recent in origin it dates back to the uh, conquests of maharaja ranjit singh the sikh king who uh, launched multiple punitive expeditions into what is now afghanistan captured large parts of uh, pashtun or afghan territory and that became the durand line because once uh, ranjit singh died the british destroyed the sikh kingdom took over the whole thing and they used the the border of ranjit singh as the de facto border between india and afghanistan after india's partition that became the border between pakistan and afghanistan and much of the northwest frontier province is historically well pashtun territory so that's why the afghans and pakistanis have this issue um so yes the the afghans don't speak urdu which is a amalgam of ancient prakrit uh, bhasha of of a certain upper branch of prakrit language with turkic arabic and persian words thrown into the mix so that's what urdu is pashto is not urdu pashto is very different pashto is more like a dardic language it's like an indo iranian language it has elements of persian it has elements of the old sanskrit grammar in it uh, if you replace the various uh, persian words with sanskrit it will uh, make a lot of sense actually and and so on so th- that's that's the story so uh that is the truth that uh, afghans are not turks the pashtuns are not moguls in any way whatsoever and the pashtuns are not very fond of urdu just like we in india are not very fond of urdu <laughs> so that's how it is
Okay, this is a question from Twitter. The poll lady asks, why are Indian parents, especially government employees, so obsessed with American Ivy League universities? That's a good question. Um, so all Indians want their, all Indian parents want their kids to do well. And until, I mean, even today, you want to do well, you need to get out of India because India's living standards and wages, etc. are quite low. India is still a developing country, a so-called low-income or third-world country. So if you can go and live in the West and earn money there, then you have a much better standard of living and quality of life and all that. And um, the key to doing that is to getting a degree in an American university or an Australian university or some Western university. And among all of these universities, the, the universities, the so-called Ivy League universities are the cream of the cream, the creme de la creme, right? The best of the lot. Of the lot. So that's why Indian parents have their greatest dream is to see their kid, their son, daughter, whatever, graduate from an Ivy League. First of all, get admission to an Ivy League university like, like Harvard or, or Stanford or whatever, right? Even Dartmouth College, I believe, is an Ivy League uh, institution. Whatever. So get admission there and get a degree from there. And So there are two things. One is that it gives you a higher chance of succeeding in the in the legacy academic system. Because if you had a degree from one of these places, you would get a high-paying job in the US. And secondly, it's a question of prestige. My kid graduated from an Ivy League or my kid got admission to Stanford or Harvard or whatever, right? It's a question of prestige. So human beings are motivated by two main things. One is money, the other thing is status. So this is something that has to do with something to do with both. There's another thing as well. She, uh, she mentions government employees. Now, um, I don't know if it is the FBI or the CIA, most likely it's the CIA that revealed this, that one of the best ways of getting a person from a third world country to cooperate with the US especially if you want that person to do something against their own country and help the US, one of the best ways of doing this is to offer their children or one of their child children admission free of cost to an Ivy League university. You get that done for them, they will do anything for you. They will betray their own country, their own people, their own government for that. So that is something the FBI, the CIA, I believe, revealed or leaked or something like that. And that applies to various third world countries, low income countries, etc. And India is very much part of that. So it would be interesting. I'm not saying anything, anybody should do this, but it would be interesting to see how many Indian government employees have children who are currently studying in the Ivy League universities or who have had such children who have studied there in the past. That would be really interesting to see. Okay, next question. Jay Kate says, can you tell everyone about the BIOT, British Indian Ocean Territory? How can the US or the UK use these islands against us whenever needed? Let's go to the map. The British Indian Ocean Territory, where is it? It is called the Chagos Archipelago, south of the Maldives. This is India. You go southwards, you have the Lakshadweep Islands. Further south, you have the Maldives. The capital is Malay. And you go further south, you have the British Indian Ocean Territory. 
which is part of the Chagos Archipelago, right? The Chago, Chago Archipelago. Now, when it comes to this British Indian Ocean Territory, the BIOT, it is an extension of the Lakshadweep and Maldives Islands. That's what it is. You could consider this archipelago to be the southernmost component of the Lakshadweep Maldives system. Now, if we go further into this place, as you can see, uh, let me show the satellite imagery, whatever is available. There is a major air base here, the Diego Garcia Airport. This place is called Diego Garcia. So there is an airport here. There are various uh, residential facilities and various other, other things, which we don't quite know what they are. There is uh, supermarkets. This looks like a residential place. Um, and so on and so forth. So as you can see, this is an extensively developed place and it is a naval and military installation. Who is operating this? It is the United States that's operating it. Who does it belong to? It still belongs to the United Kingdom, to the, to, to the, to the British. This is a leftover of the colonial legacy. Uh, I wonder why India did not reincorporate these these uh, British possessions into India. I suppose India was not in a position to choose because we were being handed over. It was a transfer of power which was give, which was happening on the terms of the British, not on India's terms. And we did not snatch independence from the British. We received it from the British as a gift or as whatever else, like some people say. So that's what it is, right? That's what the Chagos Archipelago is. Now, let's take... Um, uh, let me show you something else. Right. So the strategic importance of this place. So Diego Garcia is about 2000. This is in miles. You can convert to kilometers if you wish. This is 2000 miles from Somalia, 2300 miles from Aden in Yemen, 2700 miles from Bahrain and Qatar, 3000 miles from Kabul, 1000 miles from India, roughly. Uh, and the various distances are over here to Perth, Darwin, Australia, East Timor, Taiwan, Strait, etc. It's a very important strategic location in the middle of the Indian Ocean. Right? That's what it is. And uh, this is the kind of uh, installations that we have. There is a base there. There's a runway. There are approximately 3,000 US and UK military personnel and civilian operators. And that's what it is. Right? So that is a little bit about the uh, Diego Garcia territory, which the British still control, which belongs to Britain, but it is operated by the US. Because Britain, the UK, is a US vassal state. It's part of the same empire. So the US operates this. The majority of the personnel there, military personnel, are Americans or British who are working for the US, for the, for the same empire. So it is a very strategically located place. It's a thousand miles, 1500 kilometers or so from, from the Indian mainland. Um, and it's a very important uh, military, uh, military installation for the US. They can control much of the Indian Ocean region from there. And they would have military aircraft and uh, ships and warships, etc. docked over there. So that is what it is. It's not for use against India per se. It's just to have a very strategic position, location in the Indian Ocean. 
so that's what uh, and they have similar such bases in guam in the pacific ocean and various other locations i'm talking about the us so it is it has been part of their policy to have military bases all across the world they have i believe the us has more than 800 military bases installations all across the world and some of the most important ones in the oceans are guam in the pacific ocean and diego garcia in the indian ocean now the history is interesting the original inhabitants of diego garcia of the chago archipelago were a, a native population which included indians or people of mixed native and indian origin right these people were forcibly evicted from their ancestral homeland by the british in the 20th century and they were forcibly lo- relocated to mauritius or or some something like that and they have been demanding justice they have been demanding that they be re- that the islands be reinstated to them and i believe there was a court case in the uk and the islanders won the court case and yet nothing has been done so this territory has been stolen from the natives it has been stolen unjustly unfairly from the natives by the british and it is now used by the U- by the us so this is stolen territory which is something the americans and the british have been doing have done for the past 3 4 5 centuries right so you can look up uh, you can read up more about this but that's the little bit i would like to offer to you about this particular matter let's go on to the next question tejas says hypothetically what will happen if two black holes collide will they coexist or form a more giant black hole or get neutralized in some way and become stars planets something else when two black holes collide they merge and they become a larger black hole the mass of the resultant single black hole is slightly less than the sum of the masses of the two original black holes sum of the mass is given off in the form of energy in the form of gravitational waves when the collision the in spiral happens and the eventual merger happens so it's not quite a collision it's a process in which the black holes come together then they start orbiting each other and the radius of the orbit keeps decreasing over time the orbits go faster and faster and faster and eventually the the two black holes merge and they give off a massive tsunami of gravitational waves so some of the mass is is given off i mean this in the form of energy of the, of the gravitational waves so you can think of black holes as as well one of the analogies i can offer is to regard a black hole as a drop of fluid right a drop of fluid so there are two drops of fluid which eventually merge together so it will not get neutralized like you see or become a star or planet it will become just a larger black hole they will merge together okay karthik says which is our closest galaxy mm. which is our closest galaxy is it andromeda or is it canis major good question so um canis major is not a galaxy canis major is a constellation the word for constellation in sanskrit or hindi or whatever is nakshatra right so that's what canis major is it's not a galaxy now uh which is the closest galaxy the closest well andromeda is the closest proper galaxy it's about 2 and 1/2 million light years away from our from our location 
So that is the closest proper galaxy. But there are two other galaxies that are closer to it, which are dwarf galaxies, which is the large Magellanic Cloud and the small Magellanic Cloud. So the large Magellanic Cloud is about 160,000 light years away from us. And the smaller one is about 200,000 light years away from us. These two dwarf galaxies orbit our galaxy, the Milky Way. Uh, so that is what it is, right? Next question is by Ramalakshmi. The 9M730 Borevestnik is said to be a nuclear-powered nuclear missile which could have partly unlimited range. If The question is, if such a missile hits the planet, there will be radiation. If such a missile is intercepted, then there could be radioactive waste. It is directly released into the atmosphere. What do you... What do you think about this missile and should India also look into it? Okay, so not much is known about this missile. The existence of this missile was, I believe, uh, revealed or announced, I think, in 2018 or 2019 by Mr. Putin. Uh, so we don't quite have much information in the public domain about how this missile works, what it is like. It is believed that it has a nuclear ramjet. So a ramjet is something that uh, accelerates a missile beyond Mach, Mach 1, Mach 2. Uh, the BrahMos missile has a ramjet. It's a two-stage missile. There's an initial missile, uh, initial solid fuel motor that takes the rock, the missile past the speed of sound. And from there onwards, the ramjet can take over, which requires uh, supersonic speeds. So the BrahMos has a conventional ramjet, a chemical ramjet. It is believed that this 9M730 has a nuclear ramjet which does not have chemical fuel but which uses the, the uh, heat of a nuclear reaction, typically a fusion reaction, to, to accelerate or, or to power the, the uh, missile to Mach 2 or up to Mach 6, I believe. So that's a nuclear ramjet. The heat of the nuclear reaction uh, pushes the speed, uh, pushes the air to to beyond supersonic speeds. Uh, and uh, it has more or less unlimited, uh, unlimited range. It can fly for several days without stop. It can circle the globe multiple times, so which means it has loitering capability. It can uh, have an unpredictable path if there is programmed into it. And it has essentially unlimited range because of this. If such a missile hits the planet, obviously there will be radiation. But such a missile is designed to carry a nuclear warhead, not a conventional warhead. So uh, if it is inter intercepted, then there will be radiation, radiate, uh, release of radiation. And if it hits the target and the nuclear warhead explodes, then once again there's going to be radioactive fallout. So that's what happens anyway when a nuclear bomb is either used in warfare or it is tested in the atmosphere, an atmospheric test. So that is what the missile is. That is the purpose. Its, its purpose is to deliver nuclear warheads, not conventional warheads. And uh, so that's what we know about the missile. That's what is believed to be known about the missile. Should India look into that? I don't think India needs to look into that. We are not an expansionist nation. We don't have um, threats globally as such. We have local threats. 
the two threats are Pakistan, which is a minor threat, and China, which is the real threat. So that is what we need to be. Uh, that's what we need to plan for, and we don't need such a missile, a nuclear powered powered missile, to take care of these threats. We have our own uh, ballistic missile and strategic missile uh, program, which is more than adequate to uh, safeguard our national interests. So that's what I can say. Pranit says, can we ever have an Indian subcontinent union consisting of India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, Nepal, Bhutan with open borders like European Union? Will that boost economy of all nations? Would you like an open border with Pakistan? Would you like an open border with Bangladesh? Well, when it comes to Bangladesh, we more or less have an open border for whatever reason. Uh, but would you really want an open border with Pakistan? Does it make any sense as of today? So uh, it is not possible. As of today, at least. It won't be possible in the next 50 years until Pakistan can be suitably de-radicalized and de-terrorized. De-terroristized, or whatever you want to call it, right? Um, Pakistan is, is a terror factory. It is one of the biggest threats to world peace. I'm not talking about the people, but the establishment, the military and the terrorist infrastructure and all that. That's what it is. Even Hillary Clinton said that the Pakistanis are breeding snakes in their in their backyard for use against Afghanistan and India. Right. So Pakistan is a huge problem. We can never have an open border system with Pakistan as long as this this persists. Uh, we already have something called SARC, right? SARC, South Asian Association for Regional Cooperation, which is no longer really functional because of Pakistan. So in the future, someday. It would be great to reunify the subcontinent into one single political entity that would certainly boost the economy of the entire region. I don't mind having open borders with Nepal, which we already do, with Sri Lanka, which to some extent we, we may have, and with uh, Bhutan, even Myanmar. What else do we have? With Nepal, we already have it. So these nations, with them, we don't we could have an open border kind of agreement arrangement. With Myanmar, there is a certain issue going on there, so we may have to be careful about that. But certainly with Bhutan, certainly with Nepal, certainly with Sri Lanka. And that would certainly boost the economies of those places. Now, remember, the main engine that drives the economy of the subcontinent is India itself. Some people have pointed out that Nepal was never colonized by the British, well, officially colonized by the British, and yet despite Nepal not being colonized and no wealth being extracted out of Nepal, Nepal is so poor today. Why is it so? It's because Nepal has always depended on the Indian economy. Nepal, well, people say Nepal has always been independent. That's nonsense. Nepal was always part of various Indian empires. So Nepal's economy has always been dependent on the Indian economy. So if there is an open border system, it will certainly benefit these small local economies like Nepal, Bhutan, Sri Lanka, and so on. It would be good for all of them. So eventually we would like to have a system like that. When India rises to its full potential. Today it is not possible. Right? Dungar Singh Chauhan says, what's the most effective way to control population in a country like India? And uh, how can we ensure that we have a significant proportion of youth in our population? Well, you know what? Uh, recently the news has emerged that India's total fertility rate has slipped below the replacement level. The replacement level 
is 2.1 children statistically per woman. India's fertility rate, TFR, is now 2 children per woman, which is below the replacement rate. Of course, there are certain demographics within India which have a much higher fertility rate. We're not going, we're not going into that. But overall, statistically, India's total fertility rate is now, for the first time in, in living memory, dipped below the the replacement level. So we don't need to worry further about controlling population. It's already under control. Now, what happens when your TFR dips below the replacement level? What happens is that after four, five, six decades, your population gets older and older and older. That's what we are seeing in many countries. Look at Japan, what happened. The Japanese uh, TFR began, I'm, I'm not sure, I don't have the statistics with me, but the economy crashed after the nine, 1980s. That's a whole different story. It was made to crash. And after that, the country has gone into a recession and the Japanese population is getting older and older. And it's way below the replacement rate. The Chinese population has also gone below the replacement rate and their population is also getting older and older. The only way to ensure that there is a significant proportion of youth in your population is to ensure that your TFR is above replacement, at least 2.2 or more. But now we are at 2. So in the long run, our population is going to get older. The, the average age of the population is going to get older and older. So that's where we are. And there are a number of factors that contribute to these things. And uh, we could we could have a separate session about that. Um, the economy matters. The In the past, uh, things were different in India. Today, what hap what's happening is that they, we have this uh, ongoing and increasing urbanization of the country. And now it's getting more and more expensive to have children. Just a childbirth costs you a couple of lakh rupees in a hospital. That's what a private hospital would extract out of you. And then education has become so expensive. And the other factor is that people are so busy. You have to work a 9 to 5 job, but in private uh, companies, it's not 9 to 5, it's 9 to 7 or 9 to 9 sometimes, you know. And typically, both husband and wife are working. So there is no, no way for, for them to take care of their children. And today, we don't have extended families anymore. We have nuclear families. So who's going to take care of the kids? Right? Because people are transplanted from their native place to whatever metropolitan city they are working, on, working in. So both husband and wife, both parents are busy very busy they're trying to make a career and there's no there's not enough money to raise a child and there's no time to take care of a child so because of these factors people are having fewer kids some people are going childless out of choice or whatever and uh, so there's a there's multiple factors like this because of this india's tfr has slipped below replacement for the first time in living memory and uh, if this continues, India's population in the in this coming century, by the 21st century is done, India's average age of the population could be much, much more than what it is today. I think today the average age is, the, is 28 or so in India. So in the future, it could get older. And you know, that's how it is. So, so that's the answer to your question, sir. Uh, please answer this question. It's very important for me and for the other teens too. Okay. It's a long question. As the world is changing, colleges aren't the only medium to learn. We know how the thing is. Uh, 
we can literally learn anything for free on the internet there are many irrelevant subjects we have to study in the colleges the education system is faulty so what should we do instead of opting for a college should we learn and enhance a skill like coding from a boot camp which will save our money and even 3 4 years of our precious time uh, so that we can be financially stable and add value to the country what should be what is the best thing please 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 okay yeah this is dilemma all lots of kids face the thing is this in the us certain companies now let's let's take the example of tesla elon musk's company S- such companies they no longer require you to have some kind of a degree you don't need to have a degree to apply for a position in that company and you may be accepted even though you don't have a degree they will put you through a set of aptitude tests and interviews and all that and if you can demonstrate that you have the skills that they need then they will then you will be offered a job even if you don't have a degree in india that that situation is still not there indian companies private companies the government sector is just it's still the it is still mired in the 19th century 20th century world view so in it degrees and all that all that stuff even in the private sector the people who run the private sector most of the companies are uncles and aunties so to say and their attitudes are still very antiquated so they the most important thing for them is what degree do you have what percentage how much how many what marks did you get did you get first class distinction what did, and all that matters for them even though the education system really doesn't give you any real skills or knowledge so as of today in india degrees still matter unfortunately it is it is terrible that it but it is true as of today if you want a good job in a private company they're going to the first thing they're going to ask you is show me your degree and what percentage did you get in all that until this attitude changes you will need to go through college unfortunately right uh maybe in the next decade or so as more startups come up they will only look for skills and not care about degrees hopefully that happens soon but as of today degrees are still unfortunately important so you have you have no choice as of today get your degree and also find the time to acquire real skills like coding or whatever something that is going to give you some real value to you and whatever company or organization you work for because at the end of the day it's skills that matter today you have all these kids who come out of college with degrees who don't know how to do anything when they join a, let's say a software company or it company they have the company has to teach them the skills over a six month or so period and only then can they start becoming productive at the lowest level they're called freshers i believe right um and most of them end up on bench or whatever it takes a couple of years for the person to become actually competent in what he or she is doing that's a waste incredible waste of time and that's what the education system does you get an mba or 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 mca or whatever it is or a masters degree or bachelor degree or whatever it's worth nothing in terms of skills so unfortunately today to ensure that you have the best shot at a good career you will have to acquire your degree but also make sure that you go through whatever coding boot camp or whatever it is and acquire real skills as well so that when you actually get a job you are ready with the skills that they need that way you will have a better uh, you will have an advantage of over your peers who only have a degree but no skills so that is the right answer as of today hopefully in the next few years things will change and you will no longer need a degree i hope that happens tomorrow if possible but in the next decade at least
Okay, Karan says, what is the speed of the expanding universe? It's very simple. The speed of the expanding universe is the Hubble constant. Now, there are two values of the Hubble constant. One is uh, 73 kilometers per second per megaparsec. The other value is 68 kilometers per second per megaparsec. And why are the two values? We don't quite know. This is called the Hubble tension. I'll not go into that. So, Let's let's take the first case, 73 kilometers per second per megaparsec. Megaparsec is a unit of distance. A megaparsec is 3.26 million light years. Okay. So what does this mean? 73. Let me write it down so that you can see. Um, can I write it somewhere? 73 kilometers per second per megaparsec. I put this over here. Is it visible? Yes. So this is the Hubble constant. This is the rate of expansion of the universe. What does this mean? So this changes with distance. What this means is that uh, if an object, a star or a galaxy, is less than one megaparsec away from us, then that object is receding away from us at a speed of 73 kilometers per second. But if an object is 10 megaparsecs away from us, then that object is receding away from us at 730 kilometers per second. If something is 100 megaparsecs away from us, that object is receding away from us at 7,300 kilometers per second and so on. And there is a distance beyond which objects are actually receding away from us faster than the speed of light. So that is what it is. That is the speed of the expanding universe in very, 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 very brief. Right. Let's take the next question. Swarup Vedya says, if various models of scientists like Rutherford's model, J.J. Thompson's model, etc. Were, re were rejected, why were they taught to students in, in school? Okay, what he's referring to is the model of the atom. So here's what happened. In the late 19th century, J.J. Thomson discovered the electron. The electron is a negatively charged of subatomic particle, right? So he discovered that there is something called the electron. So he proposed the Thomson model the plum pudding model, which says that in, I think, the early 20th century, which says that electrons are like negatively charged plums embedded in a positively charged pudding. And that's what the atom is like. So that is the model he came up with based on the best data or knowledge that was available at the time. Then in 1911 or something, uh, the positively charged nucleus was discovered. So every atom has a positively charged nucleus. And this was discovered by Rutherford, Marsden and Geiger. That put, and these guys put forth the Rutherford model, which says that there is, that an atom is like a solar system, a positively charged nucleus and electrons, negatively charged electrons that go around it. So that was the Rutherford model. That was based on the best knowledge and data that we had at that time. But then certain problems happen because if electrons are going in circles in orbits around the, the positively charged nucleus, then they're going to lose energy and that should, they should in spiral into the nucleus. That doesn't happen. Then you had the Bohr-Sommerfeld explanation, the Bohr-Rutherford model and so on. 
which explained the Rydberg formula for the spectral emission lines of hydrogen and further improvements were done as more information became available and more uh, theoretical improvements were done. So if we study all of these models and how they were improved upon, then we actually learn how science is done. We understand the scientific method. That's why it's very important that these things are taught. These models were not rejected. These models were iteratively improved upon. Eventually, in the 1920s, we had the birth of the science of, of, of quantum mechanics, which eventually became quantum field theory, which is the most accurate and successful theory of physics that we have till date, part of, and so on. So that's how improvements are done. That's how science is done. And if we, if we learn these models, then we actually get to learn the scientific method and that is very valuable for science students. That's why all of these models are taught in school. Next question is by Chandrasekhar. Namaskarams Anna. Namaskar. Why should pure mathematics be funded? 95% of pure mathematics papers have no relevance, nor are they, nor do they have any applicability in the present day world. Why should any government waste their money funding these pure mathematicians just because they are doing intellectual gymnastics? Being a former mathematics student myself, I can assure you that none of my faculties or friends' research papers from top institutes are of any worth. Their H index is approximately zero. I haven't seen those results, be results being used anywhere. It's just lying down as garbage in some research journal. Has pure mathematics lost its charm to computers just like how chess has withered away due to the invention of chess engines? A good question. Uh, why should pure mathematics be funded? See, many of the... It, it's true that most, most of the research papers are worth nothing. And uh, they have no... I would not say worth nothing, but whatever they're doing, it doesn't seem to have any real application in the real world. As a physicist... I only use the math that I need to solve the problem that I'm working on. I am not interested in any, any other math. So I learn math as I go and I only use what's needed. So there's a whole toolkit that physicists use. We find that in, you'll find that in very, various uh, textbooks about the about mathem mathematical methods of physics. Um, Byron Fuller, etc. So all of that is useful in physics. Some of it has applications in computer science and so on. But much of pure mathematics has no applications anywhere as of today. So why should we fund it? Yeah. You know, when you, when you are mining gold, yeah, when you, when you have a, an operation at a gold mine, what the machines do is that they shovel up tons and tons of dirt. And then all the dirt is processed and refined thoroughly over a bunch of processes which are done in sequence. And eventually what you find is that you are able to extract a few grams of gold per ton of ore that is extracted. So for every thousand kilos of dirt that you pull out of the mine, you get a few grams of, of, of gold. And yet you do it. You go through all the dirt to get a few grams of gold. So that's an analogy we have to keep in mind. Much of pure mathematics looks like speculation. And yet it will have applications someday when our understanding of the universe improves. If we had uh, the same attitude of not funding pure mathematics, then what would have happened to Ramanujan? 
Ramanujan was into pure mathematics. For a hundred years almost, his equations had no applications in the real world. But today, some of the, the, the math that he came up with is finding applications in string theory, etc. Now, even string theory is supposedly a failed theory. It has produced no real world applications or predictions. But maybe someday it will. Uh, if we talk about matrix theory, matrices, before the 1920s, there was almost no application of matrix theory until Mr. Heisenberg needed that for uh, matrix mechanics, which is which is one of the ways of uh, which is which is part of quantum mechanics. And eventually, matrices now today are used everywhere, computers in everywhere because. Uh, uh, it's it has it is integral to computer science and many other things. So the thing is this: mathematics describes the patterns and regularities of the universe itself. Mathematics is always, at least a century ahead, typically of physics. If you stop funding mathematics, in the future physics won't progress. So that's why I agree that much of the math that is done is just being done for the sake of publication, publish or perish. Much of it has no value. And if you look at the physics papers that are being published today, 95% of them are just, I mean, they don't really have any value, right? They're not advancing the field of physics further. Look at the papers that are being published from Indian universities, especially in nuclear physics, mind-bogglingly dull and... It, it really doesn't advance the field at all in any way whatsoever. And yet they, are, they keep on publishing it. That is the academic system that we are in right now. That is the academic system across the world. Publish or perish. The only measure of, a, of an academician or scientist's uh, worth is how many papers he or she has published in the past year, in the past five years, in the past ten years. That's all. It doesn't matter if the papers are worth nothing. It is the system that is forcing scientists to do this. I can guarantee you, most of these scientists, the really good ones, would prefer to publish one paper in two or three years, but a quality paper. But they are forced to publish multiple papers every year, so they just come up with whatever they can. So I would say that mathematics, pure mathematics, is extremely important. It is vital to the future of physics. Even though, let's say 95% of it, is not really useful some of it is and it is for that small percentage of of gold that we find in it that we should fund the 100% of pure mathematics it's an investment in the future so i disagree that pure mathematics should not be funded i think it is very important i agree that 95% or more of it is not really useful but yet it is important that we fund science and fund pure mathematics too Okay, we, you once, uh, this is by Vishal, you once once stressed the importance of India developing relations with similar like-minded non-English speaking countries. Can you please elaborate why it is necessary and how it could be achieved? Well, why is it necessary? Because the world is run by the Anglo-Saxon Empire, which is headquartered in Washington, which and it has its offshoots, outposts all across the world. There are five major countries. US, Canada, UK, Australia, and New Zealand. And the headquarters is the US. 
the other countries are like vassal states or colonies and there are a whole bunch of other countries which are under the control of this empire it's called a superpower but it's actually an empire it has all the characteristics of the empire of an empire the us empire is inspired by and modeled on the roman empire have you seen the american express credit cards what is the logo on that a roman centurion so uh, and the 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 english speaking world the anglosphere the anglo-saxon empire the superpower whatever you want to call it does not want india to rise it doesn't want any country to rise and it doesn't want to make the same mistake with india which it made with china in the 1970s 80s and onwards they aided and abated the rise of china they will not make the same mistake again with india so india is being used as a counterbalance they would like to use india as a counterbalance to china but not they would not like to see india rise too much beyond a certain point and we in india would like india to rise to its fullest potential and we know what india's potential is because we know history the people who watch this channel know history therefore india will need to cooperate with like minded countries that are not part of the hegemonic force or empire that rules the world that's why india has good relations with countries like france with countries like russia and uh, various other countries so that's what india needs to do cooperate with countries that don't mind to see india don't mind don't mind seeing india rise to its full potential the french don't mind that well that's as far as we know so it's all about mutual cooperation mutual benefit helping each other and rising together so that's why it's necessary and how can it be achieved well by cooperating like we cooperate with the russians with the chinese uh, with the with the not the chinese sorry with the french and so on so france the france india relationship is an excellent example of how this can be achieved india and france have essentially a strategic partnership we are partnering in defense manufacturing we are uh, partnering in the indian ocean region we are partnering diplomatically even when india and france are on opposite sides kind of like when it comes to the U- russia ukraine situation we don't criticize each other like the americans are constantly criticizing india so that sort of mutually respectful and beneficial relationship is what india should try to achieve with lots of other countries so that is an example of how we can achieve it Okay uh let's take another question Sushrut says there are many similarities between Greek and Indian mythology so is there a possibility that the Atlantis described by Plato is related to Dwarka both submerged of course good question interesting question so uh Plato the Greek uh, historian writer whatever he spoke he wrote about this uh, legendary city state of Atlantis it is supposedly it was supposedly uh, an island kind of thing uh, built in uh, concentric circles and there was some kind of cataclysmic event that caused this island to sink under the ocean and get submerged and it was lost forever so that's the story that plato tells us and uh, historians archaeologists have been looking for it everywhere much of the uh, searching for atlantis was done in the atlantic ocean and they even named the ocean after atlantis the atlantic ocean but no such place has ever been found i think there is certainly a possibility 
that he may have been referring to Dwarka. Now the, now the Dwarka event happened way before the time of Plato. The Dwarka event, the submergence of the city of Dwarka, seems to have happened at least 8,000 years before today, if not even before that. So um, maybe that is the story he was trying to tell with a Greek kind of name, Atlantis. It is possible, but we still don't have uh, clinching evidence for, for what it was. So as of today, it's just a story. We don't have any evidence, but it is quite it is certainly possible to some extent that he may have been referring to the Indian city of Dwarka, possibly. Because it's the only city that we know of, probably in the whole world, that has submerged in the same way as Plato described Atlantis being submerged in the, under the ocean. So yeah, possible. Minakshi Srivastav says, it is said that when the asteroid hit the Earth in the Jurassic period, a lot of volcanoes erupted in the Indian continent. Where did these volcanoes go? Interesting question. Let us go to the map. Um, one second, let me put the map up so that I can explain what this is all about. Here's the map. Come on. Here it is. Okay. So, there is this region in India called the Deccan Traps. It is Madhya Pradesh, Maharashtra, Central India and so on. It is the so-called badlands of India. Mountainous, hilly region. Uh, and it is a place where you had a huge amount of volcanism many, many millions of years ago. To be more specific, between 70 and 65 million years ago. Enormous volcanism in this region. So that is the Deccan Traps. It's called the Deccan Traps. Now, about seven, between 70 and 65 million years before today, India was not where it is today. It was actually uh, over here. So there is, in, in this region, in this overall region, so India and Madagascar were both attached to the continent of Africa. And because of plate tectonics, the two regions detached, the two land masses detached from Africa and India went all the way and slammed into Eurasia, which caused the formation of the Himalayas. But 66 million years ago, India was somewhere over here, east of Madagascar, over what is called the Réunion hotspot, which is a volcanic region. So it is because of the volcanic activity in that region that we had this uh, volcanism in India. And it kind of coincides with the Cretaceous Paleogene extinction event, the Chicxulub impact event. The impact is known to have happened in the Yucatan Peninsula of Mexico. And it is now believed that the extinction of the non-avian dinosaurs was caused by, um, by the cumulative effect of two, two events, the Chicxulub impact event and the Deccan Traps volcanism. And maybe, maybe possibly, the impact event may have made the volcanoes erupt uh, with more volume. Possibly, that's a, that is something that could have happened. So the volcanoes are now extinct. The actual volcanic source is in the Indian Ocean, in the Réunion hotspot. And today, all you find, all you will see in India is the the lava formations of the Deccan Traps, which is all across central India. So you can Google that. Go to Google Images and, and Google Deccan Traps and you will see what it looks like. 
how about i do that right now let me share the screen and show you what the deccan traps looks like so we go to google search deccan traps and this is what it looks like so that's um the remains of the deccan traps it is it's no longer active as you can see so you can google it and check it out and see what it looks like all right um let's take a couple of questions and i'll take some live chat questions as well shweta asks 20 seconds rapid fire questions what do you prefer choose you cannot say none nice bank balance or nice holiday bank balance because if you have bank balance you can have undivided holidays books or telescope books history of physics both i would always prefer physics but i don't mind both love or respect both affection or perfection affection Perf- perfection is impossible tango or ballroom dance tango santorini or santorini santorini chiching says what do you eat <laughs> in a day i typically try to eat one meal in a day all you can eat in one meal um so i stay I, i prefer not to eat any wheat or rice products no carbohydrates of that kind cereals i get my carbohydrates from vegetables lots of vegetables and i try to uh, consume about 100 grams or so of protein per day so typically it's one meal a day as much as i can eat huge meal but just once uh, once in a day and it it's not always possible to do that when i'm traveling when i go to when i'm traveling and staying in a hotel or whatever then it's not possible to always stick to that that discipline so it's not a hard and fast rule but i try to do that as much as possible uh, the first four months of this year i was i completely i was able to stick to that uh, without a single break the past couple of months i've been traveling a bit and also it's not been quite that disciplined but that's typically the kind of routine i have one meal a day lots of vegetables and about 100 grams of protein from various protein sources that's what i eat in a day okay let's take some live chat questions um mountain side says what are your thoughts on mount kailash being a pyramid with immense energy prove it when you say when you say pyramid you mean something that is that has been built by humans or maybe by aliens listen what energy of it so there is no proof of what these claims that people make it's a pyramid with some nuclear reactor inside aliens have built it and this immense what kind of some kind of energy there there is absolutely no evidence for that so unless somebody can provide evidence for this i don't i will not take it seriously obviously not have you ever punched anyone not in recent times not in the past long time But yeah when your kids you you indulge in some hanky panky some rough play yeah especially when you are a boy so yeah as kids you do all that but yeah not not in in recent times i i i have never been an aggressive person i am not a violent person i love peace i love non violence so i am not somebody who is prone to punching people unless well i have no option What's my view on Yuval Harari's *Sapiens*? I have the book. I've had it for three, four, five—I don't know how many years. I've never read it, unfortunately. <laughs> so I don't know. 
I don't know. People seem to have a very high regard and opinion about this book. I don't know. Maybe someday I'll bring myself around to reading it. Um, somehow, I mean, I've never quite felt the the urge to read it, even though I have it. Like I say, I buy books. I I, I buy more books than I can read, and I read and I've read more books than I've bought. So that's the situation where I'm in. I have a reading backlog that's about that's more than a hundred books long. So. Uh, this book is still something that i have not yet uh started reading or tried to read but i have it come on ask me some interesting question come on guys and girls they just says was sumeria another civilization formed by the outward migration of indians i would say no sumerian culture is very different from ancient indian culture obviously sumerian culture is no longer extant today but uh, the culture they had was polytheistic, but it was very different from Indian culture. So from what I have read and studied, I have not been able to see any significant connections between Indian culture and Sumerian culture. It most likely is indicates that these are two separate ethnic groups and two separate cultures or civilizations. So the answer is most likely no. With increasing tension in the Asia-Pacific region, how do you see India's position? India's position is very simple. We look out for our own national interest. And things that that happen far away, if they don't affect our national interest, they don't concern us. We will not interfere in the matters of other countries. And we demand that nobody interferes in our internal matters. So... uh, So that is overall what India's position is. If there is some incident in the Asia-Pacific region, India will take appropriate measures if it affects India's national interest. And typically today in the interconnected world that we live in, something that happens 3,000 kilometers away will end up affecting you as well. So India will put its national interest first. If there is a Chinese invasion of Taiwan, we will take appropriate measures to safeguard our national interest. If there is an incident between China and the Philippines, China and Vietnam, China and Japan, the Senkaku Islands or whatever, if there is something like that that happens, we will take appropriate measures to safeguard our national interest. And that's all it is. So that is going to be India's position as of today, as of now. Okay. Um... What are my views about our external affairs minister, Dr. Jayshankar, and recent statements made by him? I have a video about that. Look it up. Uh, I think he's the best external affairs minister we have probably ever had. So, yeah, I have a very, very high regard for Dr. Jayshankar and the way he is uh, navigating India through the uh, geopolitical sphere. Very good. Very good job. And uh, so, yes, I'm... I'm um, I have a very high regard for him and what he is doing. Okay, let's take some more questions. Some more questions. Ask me something interesting, something I've not answered before. Um, India, Australia, ties are getting stronger. We are seeing India-Australia ties are getting stronger. What can we conclude? 
US trying to strengthen the hold in the region. India-Australia ties are essentially India-US ties. So if India-Australia ties are getting stronger, it means India-US ties are getting stronger. Australia is a US colony or a, or a US project or a US possession. That's what Australia is. So yeah, when India and Australia are doing well, it means the India and the US is also doing well. Uh, what are your views on the Astra missiles? Uh, the Astra missile is an air-to-air -air missile. It is something that a fighter aircraft would fire at another fighter aircraft to, to take it out. So I think that we are now inducting these missiles, the, the Mark One version, the V1 version, uh, not the V1 version, sorry, the Mark One version of this missile into our Air Force, into the... Uh, Tejas jets, the Sukhois, Jaguars, etc. It's an excellent missile. The Mark I version seems to have, if, if I recall correctly, a range of about 120 kilometers. And the Mark II version that is now being uh, tested most likely soon, it will have a range of about 160 kilometers or so. Yeah. So these are excellent missiles. Very good missiles. They have performed very well in all the tests. And I can't look forward. I mean, I'm I'm very happy to see that we are inducting more and more indigenous technology into our armed forces. So my views are that my view is that these are excellent world-class missiles, and it's great that we have this missile now. So we don't need to buy such missiles like the Meteor missile or whatever else, or the Russian missiles from other countries. Great, great development. Okay, let's take a couple of questions. If time is money, why aren't we making a time machine? Yeah, good question. I'll think about it. Um, how to develop the art of asking quality questions? Oh, that's an interesting question. How how to ask quality questions? Well, you should ask yourself, what's the purpose for you of asking questions? Uh, is the question supposed to benefit you? Is it, is it supposed to benefit other people? So a question needs to be something that uh, gives you new information that helps you learn something and yeah that's that's what I, I guess I can say as long as the question brings forth new knowledge that you haven't acquired in the past it's a good question please have a sports podcast <laughs> well typically uh, for me it's history science and geopolitics I did one IPL pod IPL live stream in which I hardly looked at the cricket. So I don't know. Maybe I'll do it in the future. Maybe. I, I do like sports. Big fan of certain sports. So yeah, maybe I could do that in the, in the, in the future. Right. Is the African continent really splitting into two pieces? Uh, I have not seen any evidence of that. There is the Rift Valley, of course, where there is this uh, tick two tectonic plates that have uh, split apart and maybe that's how our ancestors split off from the other species like the chimpanzees and the gorillas possibly uh, but no there is no evidence that the african continent is splitting into two pieces right uh who was sher shah suri was he come on 
no he was not liberal who he was not tolerant he was an afghan born in bihar he ruled over delhi for 5 years he and uh, yeah there is no evidence that he was liberal or tolerant or whatever that some people claim did he have any contribution towards india what can you contribute if you rule for 5 years nothing nothing much i know some people won't like what i said but well i'm not here to please everybody um when are you showing your entire bookshelf mm, i will not show all my secrets certain books are not to be shown <laughs> i'm just kidding maybe someday i'll do it maybe uh where was that why are they not trying to bring back the tasmanian tiger you can't bring everything back it's not possible i mean we're not gods that we can just create any species back back uh, out, out of a few cells that you may have found uh, some people are trying to recreate the uh, the extinct mammoth we find mammoths all the time but it's not really possible you know i mean it, thus far it has not really succeeded i'm sorry what is all this i was trying to look for something which has disappeared okay somebody asked uh, there's a super chat question let's take this one uh, rahul thank you uh, i loved your chingis khan video and your perspective on how history is flawed what do you think about the yasa laws and do you see the, see the relevance in today's time so the yasa laws were the laws of the mongol empire the laws that were most likely instituted by chingis khan himself these laws were never written down but uh, what these laws were was known because they were enforced and implemented a whole bunch of uh, do's and don'ts and what you could do what you could not do and what punishments were given for what crimes so one of the things is that women were held in very high regard you could not kidnap a woman you could not do what uh, you know abuse a woman in any any way and uh, i think there was a death penalty for that and so on and so forth so there was a whole code of laws that the mongols followed and it was applied all across the mongol empire the enormous mongol empire uh, which essentially encompassed approximately half of the known world for the time so the yasa laws were are they relevant in today's times well i think the punishments that were prescribed in these laws may be seen as barbaric in today's day and age possibly i mean people would say what about human rights what about democracy and all that so maybe they are not relevant today but they were very much relevant for that time and they were the laws were imp- implemented and enforced uniformly across all subjects whether you were a common soldier whether you were male or female whether you were mongol or non mongol whether you were royalty or not everybody was subject to these laws so there was uniformity in the application of the laws and when you have that sort of discipline that's what is the foundation of a really strong and powerful empire so that's what i can say in brief about the yasa laws i think on some websites there is a there are lists of what the laws were like so if if someone is interested they can look that up so that's what i can say in brief about the yasa laws how much how long will it take for india to become self reliant in defense maybe 10 or 20 years maybe 20 years uh 10 years is, is maybe too sh- too short a time for that 
but most likely within 20 years we could become more or less self-reliant in defense as long as we invest properly in the defense in uh, defense industry and create a self-sustaining industry and, and, and ecosystem and we bring in the private players for creating and manufacturing spare parts and various components of the defense uh, equipment. So that is all happening right now. That's very much happening now. So I'm very confident that in the next 20 years, we would be more or less self-reliant in the defense industry. And I think that's that's it for today. I know there are lots of other questions, but we are almost at the two-hour mark. So I'm going to stop it here. Thank you very much, all of you, for your questions. Very interesting questions as always. And let's do it again next week. Until then, take care and see you next week. Thank you. Bye.